0: Hello, everyone. We have with us lecturer Jacqueline Marie Tolentino from Ateneo de Manila University, who is also a PhD candidate at the Ateneo de Manila La Trobe University PhD partnership. Um, We've known uh, Jackie for several years. She's a, a student and a friend from uh, La Trobe and, and of this forum as well. Uh, welcome, Jackie. And Welcome. Before we begin this event, I would like to acknowledge the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon upon which the um, Melbourne campus of Latrobe University sits. I would also like to pay respect to their people, to their people both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians who are watching this session and other Indigenous peoples in the Philippines and elsewhere who join us. Thank you so much Jackie once again for being with us and the uh, floor is now yours as you know the format of this uh, program is that we first offer you well um, 40 minutes or so um, Mm -hmm. to share your um, presentation with us and then we have a brief Q&A and of course all the participants thank you so much for being here Uh, Feel free to start sharing your questions uh, in writing as the presentation goes. And then when we have the Q&A, we'll read them and get a discussion going.
1: Thank you so much, Raul. Also to Ray, Diana, and the rest of the Latrobe Asia team for organizing this event, this Philippines in Focus event. Um, And really, good afternoon. I said, good afternoon over there. Yes. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, and thank you really for for being here. So my presentation this afternoon will draw for my PhD thesis Um, which I recently presented on, actually, for my pre-submission review um, and where I ask about what relational egalitarian justice requires in response to the inequalities of COVID-19 in the Philippines. Um, One of the aims of my thesis is to construct a relational egalitarian framework uh, to examine these inequalities, um, which I apply to, among other things, the unequal distribution of resources to control COVID-19. Uh, However, um, just to keep the length of this presentation manageable, I will focus only on the unequal distribution of personal protective equipment, or PPE, in the country. Then, using my framework, I will show that this unequal distribution is unjust because it stems not only from uncoordinated and inconsiderate mandates, but also from arbitrary and unaccountable domination, systemic marginalization, and the expression of disregard toward Filipinos. you can all see my slides just before I continue. Yes, they're clear. Okay, great. So, um, to keep, oh, sorry, well, where was I? There we go. Um, the unequal distribution of PPE in the Philippines goes back to when the Taal volcano erupted in Luzon on January 12, 2020, which prompted the Department of Health, or DOH, to advise those affected by the eruption to wear face masks to avoid inhaling volcanic ash. The DOH also warned about possible medical issues caused by being exposed to volcanic ash, such as throat irritation, coughing, bronchitis-like illness, and discomfort while breathing. This means that even before COVID-19 entered the country, the practices of wearing face masks and of being fearful and defensive against potential health threats had already become commonplace in Luzon. As a result, even before the WHO released official guidance on protecting oneself against COVID-19, there was already a shortage of face masks in some parts of the country. The face mask shortage grew even worse uh, and spread to more areas soon after the confirmation of the first COVID-19 cases in the country, when case numbers started to grow exponentially. By March 2020, several hospitals and health facilities started calling for donations in kind or in cash, specifying that they were about to or had already run out of face masks and other PPE. Many healthcare workers at this point were simply buying their own face masks to keep themselves safe at work. Some were even improvising and making DIY PPE. The worsening shortage eventually prompted the WHO's representative in the Philippines to issue a reminder that PPE, especially face masks, should be reserved for healthcare workers and that the general public should avoid hoarding these for their own use especially since the WHO at that time thought that COVID-19 spreads through large droplets expelled at close range, making the use of face masks and other PPE by the general public unnecessary. But reserving face masks and Other PPE for healthcare workers became practically impossible when, on April 1, 2020, the Interagency Task Force for the Management of Emerging Infectious Diseases, or IADF, chaired by the DOH, required the use of face masks when going out to public spaces in areas under Enhanced Community Quarantine, or ECQ, which at the time included the entire island of Luzon, without any plans for the nationwide provision of face masks. And though ECQ was eventually lifted in some areas, a modified form of it, or MECQ, remained in high risk areas until the end of May 2020, such as in Metro Manila in Laguna in Luzon and Cebu City in Visayas. Additionally, the wearing of face masks was incorporated into the minimum public health standards set by the DOH as seen in the BIDA Solution Guidelines, which is a pun on the phrase BIDA Solution, released in August 2020, where B stands for Bawal Ang Walang Mask or Not Wearing a Mask is Prohibited. So even if ECQ and MECQ were later lifted and replaced with a more lenient GCQ or General Community Quarantine, Filipinos were still required to wear some sort of face masks some sort of face mask, rather, when going out to public spaces. Then on March 23, 2020, The Bayanihan to Heal as One Act, or Bayanihan One, was signed into law by then-President Duterte. Aside from declaring that the Philippines was in a national health emergency, Bayanihan One also granted the President necessary and special, appropriate special powers to respond to the pandemic, including the authority to expedite procurement for PPE and other relevant goods, and the authority to realign savings from the previous budget and reallocate funds held by government agencies and government-owned and controlled corporations. Bionion 1 eventually expired on June 24, 2020, but before that date, the Philippine Congress had already started working on the Bayanihan to Recover as One Act, or Bayanihan 2. Bayanihan 2 reaffirmed the state of national health emergency that had been declared in Bayanihan 1 and provided additional funding to stimulate the country's economic recovery and strengthen the health sector. Bayanihan 2 was signed into law by Duterte on September 11, 2020, and then expired on June 30, 2021. Given the need for more face masks and other PPE in the country, and with the aim of jumpstarting the country's capacity to produce its own PPE through funding made available by Bayanihan 1 and 2, many local manufacturing companies that had earlier convert- converted part of their operations to the production of PPE sought to secure contracts with the national government. Over time, however, it became apparent that the Procurement Service of the Department of Budget and Management, or PSDBM, preferred awarding contracts to importers and certain favored suppliers. As a result, many local manufacturers eventually stopped producing PPE and reverted to their former operations. In this way, the national government stamped out the possibility of the Philippines being self-sufficient when it comes to resources for personal protection. The lack of local PPE manufacturers becomes more significant when we consider how local government units, or LGUs, given the devolved health system in the country were later mandated by Duterte to provide face masks for their respective constituents. But LGUs have unequal and varying capacities and priorities. And if you pair this inequality and variability with a limited local supply of PPE, then it becomes clear how the availability of free face masks would eventually vary across the country. In other words, there are LGUs that are capable of providing free face masks for their constituents. In fact, some had already started to do so even before the Duarte ordered it, while there are others that are not. And in areas where no free face masks are provided, private companies and citizens have had to purchase their own. Or if they cannot afford face masks or if none are available, they've had to make do with DIY or cloth ones. Adding to the burden of being required to wear a face mask in public was the requirement of wearing a face shield. In August 2020, the Department of Transportation announced that passengers on any mode of public transport would be required to use a face shield on top of their face mask. Then, months later, in December 2020, the IADF mandated the use of both face masks and face shields not only on public transport, but in all public areas. Concerns over the additional burden of needing to purchase a face shield to go out in public were brushed aside by the national government. For, as Presidential Spokesperson Harry Rocket claimed, the use of face Shields was, quote, not an issue of cost anymore, end quote, saying, quote, I doubt meron pang taong walang face shield, or I doubt there are still people who don't have face shields, end quote. In early 2021, however, the view that COVID-19 spreads through large droplets expelled at close range started to shift. Building on questions raised by aerosol scientists from as early as March 2020, various scientists, specialists, epidemiologists, and researchers joined forces and became more and more vocal about their view that COVID-19 is airborne, contrary to early official guidance from the WHO. Given the developments regarding the airborne transmission of COVID-19, a handful of Filipino researchers and public health advocates started raising questions, however, um, about the effectivity of face shields against an airborne disease. Wind engineer Joshua Agar, for example, pointed out and demonstrated that face shields can create a region of negative pressure that sucks in the air, and thus increase the chances of catching aerosols carrying SARS-CoV-2. Such concerns regarding the effectivity of face shields further strengthened public ag- opinion against them, as many Filipinos considered face shields to be, quote, dagdag basura, dagdag gastos pa, or additional garbage, additional expense too, end quote. Adding to the pressure against the mandatory use of face shields was the 2020 report that the Commission on Audit, or COA, released in August 2021. In the report, COA flagged the purchase of overpriced face masks and face shields by the PSDBM in April and May 2020, just after Bayanihan 1 was signed into law. The committee, or rather the price irregularities flagged in the COA report, in turn triggered a Senate Blue Ribbon Committee investigation um, on the procurement process and contracts of the PSCBM during the pandemic. The investigation hearings would eventually uncover more procurement irregularities that would make Filipinos grow even more mistrustful of the required use of face masks and especially of face shields. Fortunately, soon after the Senate investigation started, the IETF began dropping the required use of face shields in public, first by limiting the mandatory use of face shields to the three Cs, that is to closed, crowded, and close contact places in September 2021, and then weeks after replacing community quarantine with a new alert level scheme, by dropping the mandatory use of face shields in places under alert levels 1 to 3, while making it optional and retaining it in areas under alert levels 4 and 5, respectively. All in all, what I've shown so far is that face masks and other PPE are needed to control COVID-19 in the Philippines, but official guidance on their use has been uncoordinated and thus inconsiderate. The mandatory use of face masks in public has failed to consider the varying financial capacities of Filipinos, as well as the limited and thus unequal distribution of PPE in the country. This was the case when the the Taal volcano erupted, when face masks were first in demand in the country. It is still the case now during the pandemic. And instead of making face masks easily accessible to all, the national government stamped out the possibility of a self sufficient local supply of PPE. Um, The national, uh, forgive me, hold on, which would have at least helped LGUs provide face masks for their constituents. The national government also further burdened Filipinos with the additional requirement of facing Of wearing face shields, whose effectivity against an airborne disease such as COVID-19 has been called into question. Thankfully, the mandatory use of face shields has been virtually scrapped by the IATF. But even if Filipinos now have one fewer expense to worry about as they protect themselves against COVID-19 in public, the problem remains. Face masks and other PPE continue to be unequally available and accessible in the country. Such a statement still applies today under the Marcos administration, which has been easing the mandatory use of face masks in public. President Marcos first approved the voluntary use of face masks in outdoor settings in September 2022, and then later expressed through Tourism Secretary Cristina Frasco his intention to make indoor face mask use voluntary as well. But even if lifting the mandatory use of face masks in public eases the burden of needing to purchase them, it does nothing to address the unequal availability and accessibility of face masks and other PPE in the country. More importantly, it does nothing to negate the fact that the use of face masks still reduces the risks of catching and spreading COVID-19, about which medical practitioners and public health advocates, even those from the DOH, have been very vocal. If anything, making the use of face masks voluntary places more responsibility and weighs even more on Filipinos as individuals, many of whom are high risk in terms of health and cannot afford to catch COVID-19. This shows that although the unequal distribution of PPE has connections to uncoordinated uncoordinated and inconsiderate mandates, it also stems from relational inequalities that intertwine with financial and political issues. These relational inequalities are often overlooked in problems of unequal distribution, since such problems are typically viewed first and foremost as distributive concerns. But the relational egalitarian framework that I propose in my thesis, which I will briefly discuss here, suspends this tendency. Such a suspension is necessary, especially in the Philippine context, where inequalities involving health have relational aspects that overlap with other distributive inequalities that are profoundly shaped by existing social hierarchies and prejudices. Thus, instead of approaching the unequal distribution of PPE as if it were primarily and solely a distributive concern, rather, we approach it first and foremost as a relational one and disentangle its factors using my framework. My framework is a series of questions that, following the movement of non-ideal theory and borrowing from the work of relational egalitarians such as Elizabeth Anderson and Thomas Pogg, envisions relational equality as a hypothetical and imagined solution to health inequality, specifically in the context of COVID-19 in the Philippines. As such, my framework presumes the importance of health as a social good, that is, it is cognizant of the socially controllable factors that determine health outcomes. Moreover, my framework takes the justice-based view of relational equality. That is, it conceives of justice in relational rather than distributive terms, and thus considers health and its social determinants, including their relational aspects, as factors of basic human functioning that are within the scope of justice. Here then are the questions that make up my um, proposed framework the orders of which, I hope you can read it, the order of which, rather, is not meant to be followed strictly. First, we ask, what are the causally relevant relational factors of the unequal impact of COVID-19 in the Philippines? Then, for each of these, we ask, is the relational factor a hierarchy of power, esteem, or standing, wherein a group of individuals is disempowered through arbitrary and unaccountable domination, disrespected through stigmatization, um, or disadvantaged through systemic marginalization? If it is, then it is unjust. Additionally, is the relational factor an institutional treatment or social arrangement that expresses disregard toward individuals? If it is, then it is unjust. Next, we ask, hold on, what are the causally uh, relevant distributive factors of the unequal impact of COVID-19 in the Philippines? And again, for each of these, we ask, does the distributive factor embody? Is it caused by or does it cause unjust relations? If it does or if it is, then it is unjust. Starting with the relational factors of health crisis such as COVID-19 and setting them apart from distributive factors may be counterintuitive to some. This is to be expected since the dominant approach to health crises and to the pursuit of health equity in general relies heavily on epidemiology, which in turn focuses on the distributive factors of disease and ill health. Fortunately, there is a growing recognition of the need to pay more attention to the effect of social and political structures on health outcomes and to the role of social justice in advancing health equity, especially in the context of health crises such as pandemics. My framework is a response to that need. It is not meant to replace current frameworks in health equity research or in research on pandemic preparedness and response, but instead to complement them. Let us now ask the first set of questions in my framework, applied to the specific inequality that this presentation is about. What are the causally relevant relational factors of the unequal distribution of PPE in the Philippines? And simply, which of them unjustly disempower, disrespect, disadvantage, or disregard Filipinos? The first relational factor that can be gleaned from the preceding discussions is the country's fragmented health system, which was devolved through the Local Government Code, or LGC, in 1991, with the broad aims of preventing the excesses of centralized government and stabilizing the national economy. But because the health system was broken up into fragmented units, more precisely the separate rural, provincial, and regional regional rather health systems that have been localized through LGUs, it has been operating and struggling with a broken chain of command with weakened and dysfunctional relations between and among the DOH and LGUs, and more importantly, with wider disparities in the quality and availability of health services and thus in health outcomes. These consequences are clearly seen in the public health mandates from the national government to the LGUs and in the unequal distribution of face masks and other PPE that I just discussed. Curiously, the devolution of the health system was meant to be an antidote to issues that were rooted in a hierarchy of power in the health system, to inequalities in power, responsibility, and more importantly, in health health outcomes that were caused by such a hierarchy." But it has also resulted in fragmentation, that is, in each of the localized health systems operating apart from the DOH and each other, and in health services being broken up according to the territorial jurisdictions of LGUs. In this sense, fragmentation can be said to have resulted in systemic forms of social closure, which through various mechanisms reinforces relational inequality and leads to distributive inequality, sits and enables, in Anderson's words, quote, the exclusion of one social group from equal access to critical resources." Is controlled by another. In the case of the Philippine health system, it can be said that the fragmentation, or rather that fragmentation, has made possible the exclusion of one unit of the health system, say of an LGU from the rural or provincial units, from equal access to essential medical resources that are controlled by another unit of the health system, say to supplies of face masks that are controlled by another LGU or by the DOH and the national government. Precisely because fragmentation has enabled an exclusionary arrangement in the health system, and because exclusion is the gateway to other unjust forms of unequal relations such as domination, stigmatization, and marginalization, it can be tempting to right away say that the fragmented health system in the Philippines is unjust. But the health system is closely tied to other factors that extend beyond and govern the health system. As such, I argue that, based on my framework, if the health system is unjust because it can and does treat Filipinos unjustly, then it is so because of the other factors to which it is tied. The first of these other factors that extend beyond and govern health system is a relational one uh, which we can call the dominance of Manila. This dominance stems from the overall hierarchy of power in the country that is from the unitary presidential system of government that has been in place since the country gained independence from the U.S. in 1946. This system concentrates political and economic power in the executive branch of government, which is headed by the president, is based in the country's capital, city of Manila, and is composed of the vice president, the cabinet secretaries, and linking back to the preceding discussion on devolution and fragmentation, the local chief executives." The executive branch's hold over political and economic power has enabled consolidating mechanisms that have encouraged, if not coerced, members of other branches of government, which are also based in Manila, to secure their share of power by seeking the favor of the president and his or her allies. Over time, these concessions for access to power have reduced, in Roland Tussalam's words, quote, any political clout that other institutions have as it pertains to separation of powers and checks and balances, end quote. As such, Tusalem continues, quote, the Unitary Executive is capable of implementing policy without much policy input or cooperation from other branches or regional governments, end quote, making the need for policy making that is genuinely responsive to the concerns of those outside of the Unitary Executive and other branches of government, that is, those outside Manila, immaterial. Put differently, the unitary presidential system in the Philippines has enabled exclusionary mechanisms that have kept those outside of Manila away from the center of power, so to speak, and in the periphery. From the relational perspective, this means that the hierarchy of power that is encased in the country's system of government has enabled the arbitrary and unaccountable domination of the periphery by the center. It has also turned into a hierarchy of standing wherein those in the periphery are routinely overlooked and thus marginalized by those at the center and by the system of government itself, which favor the development and accumulation of power within the center. Such an arrangement also expresses disregard toward those in the periphery as their needs and concerns are consistently excluded from the crafting of policies and thus left unaddressed. Based on my framework then, I argue that the dominance of Manila is unjust because it is clearly a case of arbitrary and unaccountable domination, systemic marginalization, and the expression of disregard. To further... Oops, there we go. To further explain why the dominance of Manila is unjust, and to connect back to the fragmented health system of the une- and the unequal distribution of PPE, we need to discuss the country's malfunctioning public finance system. This factor involves the distribution of national budgetary funds among LGUs, which signals that we have reached the point in our examination where it is apt to ask the second set of questions in my framework: What are the causally relevant distributive factors of the unequal distribution of PPE in the Philippines, and which of these embody our? caused by or caused unjust relations. Since, however, the malfunctioning public finance system is the only distributive factor that is causally relevant to the unequal distribution of PPE, we can focus on answering the second set of the two questions, or rather the second of the two questions. The malfunctions of the public finance system go back to the enactment of the LGC in 1991. Aside from devolving the health system, the LGC also transferred more government responsibilities to the level of the LGUs with the aims of decentralizing and localizing public services and granting of granting LGUs more agency and autonomy. But differently the decentralization brought about by the LGC was made possible Uh, was made, rather, in response to the concentration of political and economic power on the national level of government, that is, to the dominance of Manila. Prior to the enactment of the LGC, however, there were already distributive inequalities in the financial capacities of LGUs, with some LGUs being more well-off than others. Such an inequality put LGUs with smaller capacities at a disadvantage because they were unable to absorb the additional responsibilities that were devolved to them by the LGC. These LGUs thus started to depend on funding from the national government through intergovernmental transfers to carry out their responsibilities. Such a dependence has in turn dulled the initiative of LGUs to develop their own capacities and work on attaining fiscal autonomy. As Ronald Mendoza and Judo Campo explain further, quote, under these conditions, central government continue to dominate local public finance, either by design or by default, providing the bulk of support for LGU expenditures. This has, in turn, continued to fuel the size of the central government, which has dwarfed the bureaucracy of local government despite decentralization, end quote. In addition to the dependence of LGUs on the national government for funding, there are also ambiguities in the provisions of the LGC that have enabled scheming between LGU officials and officials who oversee the budget of the national government and its agencies. Such an arrangement has skewed the financial decisions of LGUs in favor of activities and projects of other national government officials and agencies, thus displacing the needs of LGUs in terms of priority in local budgets. It has also enabled the insertion of items in the national budget that benefit the national and local officials who are in collusion with one another, all in all compromising the public finance system in the country. These spaces for corruption in the public finance system, as well as the financial dependence of LGs, LGUs rather, on the national government, have strengthened and developed the center in Manila and have thus further disadvantaged and marginalized and disregarded those in the periphery, making the periphery subordinate and subservient to the center. As such, it can be argued that, based on my framework, the malfunctioning public finance system of the Philippines embodies, is caused by, and causes, the unjust dominance of Manila. That is, it embodies, is caused by, and causes, the arbitrary and unaccountable domination and systemic marginalization of those outside of Manila, and thus expresses disregard toward them. The issues that arise from the dominance of Manila and the malfunctioning public finance system carry over to the country's fragmented health system. Though the health system was developed through the LGC with the intentions of addressing the distributive inequalities of centralization, the unjust relational inequalities of centralization, that is, arbitrary and unaccountable domination, systemic marginalization, and expression of disregard, were overlooked and have thus been channeled through the malfunctioning public finance system that funds the localized and fragmented units of the health system. In this sense, the health system has served as a repeater of the relational injustices that stem from the national government and public finance systems. Of the country. In the context of COVID 19, these factors the dominance of Manila, the malfunctioning public finance system, and the fragmented health system have resulted in, among other things, the unequal distribution of resources to control COVID 19, specifically in the unequal distribution of PPE. As such, the unequal accessibility and availability of PPE stem not only from uncoordinated and inconsiderate mandates or from the varying financial capacities and priorities of LGUs and even of individual Filipinos, but also from relational injustices. The unequal distribution of PPE, therefore, is unjust. Uh, Before I conclude this presentation, Here's a good example where it's actually not a good example, it's a horrible example um, in the ethical sense um, that shows how all these factors come together. Uh, Let me return to the lot of procurement irregularities that happened under Bayanian 1 and 2, which I mentioned earlier. These irregularities can be traced back to the preference of the national government for certain suppliers when it came to awarding contracts for the procurement of face masks and other PPE. One supplier in particular, Formerly pharmaceuticals easily secured procurement contracts with the national government through the PSDBM and the DOH, despite having zero track record, being only under a year old at the time Bayanian was passed, listing fake addresses for its owner's contact details, and having ties to another company that was taken off the Taiwanese stock market for fraud." Through the report fa- filed by the COA and in the investigation conducted by the Senate Blue Ribbon Committee in the second half of 2021, it was revealed that out of all the contracts awarded by the PSDM under biennium bien- bien 1 and 2, which amounted to a total of $20.9 billion, Farmily secured contracts amounting to 8.7 billion pesos, close to half of the total worth of contracts awarded by the government in response to COVID-19. During their investigation, senators questioned the decision to spend such a large amount of government's funds on contracts with a company that had a dubious background. Additionally, the Senate investigation revealed that the items that the PSPDM had purchased from Farmily were overpriced. Face masks were sold to the government at 27.72 pesos per piece at a time when other suppliers priced them at 13.50 pesos to 17.50 pesos. COVID 19 test kits were sold at 1,720 pesos each when they were available elsewhere at 925 pesos. And PPE were sold at 1,910 pesos per set when they were priced on the market at 945 pesos. The Senate investigation also revealed that the PSDBM had illegitimately purchased extraction machines, mechanical ventilators, PPE sets, test kits, face masks, and face shields for the DOH after the latter transferred 41.8 billion pesos in unutilized funds to the PSDBM without proper documentation. Some of these items were purchased from Pharmali and amounted to a total of at least 4.84 billion pesos. Former PSDBM Undersecretary Christopher Lau, who reportedly has connections to Duterte via Duterte's former Special Assistant Bongo, or Senator Bongo, um, defended the purchases and argued that the items that PSDBM had procured were considered Common Use Supplies and Equipment, or CSE, and so procuring them for the DOH and other government agencies was authorized. Senators pointed out, however, that a Memorandum of Agreement was required to authorize such a procurement and that face shields were not on the list of approved CSE. As a result, by the end of 2020, the PSDBM was overstocked with expensive face shields that other government agencies and units did not need or could not afford. Curiously, the use of face shields in public was made mandatory by the IADF in December 2020. A draft report of the Senate investigation was eventually released in February 2022 with recommendations to file plunder cases against then-DOH Secretary Francisco Duque, Lau, and several formerly officials, including Michael Yang, who had served as one of Duterte's advisors. The draft report also recommended filing charges against Duterte himself, for he had earlier prohibited his cabinet secretaries from participating in the investigation and openly criticized the Senate Blue Ribbon Committee members for conducting the investigation in the first place. The implication of Duterte became the Reason why many other senators, most of whom were allies of the Duterte, refused to sign and officialize the draft report, thus leaving the investigation on the family controversy unresolved. Um, There's more to say uh, about the unequal distribution of resources to control COVID-19 in the Philippines. But I don't have a lot of time left for this presentation. And um, I don't know if you can hear my background, but it seems that Christmas is here already. (laughs) Because we're playing Christmas music somewhere. So I'm so sorry for that. It was totally silent when I found this spot. And now it's not.
0: don't worry at all we can we can't actually hear the music oh great
1: I that's can, great it's, it's so loud it, for me
0: I And mean, <laughs> you know and, and and actually if it can be of any help in my <laughs> hometown in venezuela two days ago or last week oh, it's all right they yeah it started the christmas season already <laughs> so you know it goes on for three months <laughs>
1: i know here for sure it's the burmans after all <laughs> But anyway, um, I'll just conclude at this point. Uh, it's my final side anyway. So I'm really sorry if you can hear anything in the background. So even if I limited the scope of my discussion uh, discussion rather, to only the unequal distribution of PPE and the application of my framework, I hope that I was able to show that the problems of distribution involve um, relational factors that can point to what needs addressing. This is especially helpful when it comes to problems of justice involving health inequality, since these often involve complex. Complex inequalities that overlap and intertwine and that go beyond mere distributions among groups or individuals. After all, as Pogge put it, quote, treating recipients justly does not boil down to promoting the best distribution among them. What matters is how social rules treat, not how they affect the set of recipients, end quote. Thank you for listening, and uh, I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you.
0: Thank you, thank you very much, thank you so much. Uh, Jackie. This is this is this is fantastic, and once again, thank you for your presentation. Which actually, something that I've always liked, as you know, about your research is that on one hand, it highlights, uh, it has um, implications that go well beyond the the topic that you are uh, that you are explaining, and also important lessons that go beyond the Philippines. For people with no with interest outside of uh, outside of the Philippines as well, a very powerful, very compelling presentation. Um, I'm gonna use the chance now to encourage our um, participants to um, ask us questions. We have 15 attendees, uh, Jackie, which I always you know like to imagine. Um, you know, when we have 15, 20 attendees, imagine them sitting with you in a room. You know, we are all sitting in a room here. Uh, does anybody have? Any questions? And please, you can share them on the Q and A. You can also um, share them on the ch- on the chat. Uh, we have a couple of questions already, and I'm going to start by the order of where they are uh, offered. Um, we have Ebony Watts. Uh, Ebony, welcome uh, once again to our um, webinar. Um, do you believe, Jackie, if a similar sudden nationwide PPE demand happened? in five years, um, would the same mistakes and issues repeat? Or do you think the Philippines government and the different government instances have learned from these mistakes? And by the way, that's a very important question. I know, that's true. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you so much, Raul. And thank you, Ebony, for that question. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to say this without saying too much, because I might get in trouble. (laughs) But um, uh, With the current administration, Uh, I I don't think the lessons that we should have learned by now will be applied. Uh, So it's a bit pessimistic, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I'm afraid. Um, And and I I see that now, actually, in in the first 100 days of our new president, um, Marcos, uh, there were quite a lot of issues involving his handling of the pandemic, of course, it's not his fault that it happened. Um, of course, many of the problems that he has to deal with now he inherited from the previous administration. Um, but in he he promised that he would, among other things, fix the, for example, the alert level scheme regarding quarantines, but they haven't. Um, it took him over a hundred days before appointing a new health secretary which is ridiculous given the pandemic um, uh, what else as I said he planned to remove face mask mandates his vice president Sara Duterte is really pushing for a full face-to-face return for schools because she took over the Department of Education even if she has no experience in education so I, I'm just giving you uh, yeah, I, yeah. Again, it, it sounds very pessimistic but i mean cynical even but I I, I truly worry for my my country, you know, I, I truly worry for how things will uh, be in the next few years, though, though uh, I was telling this to my supervisor, actually, that I'm, I'm really hoping that our president, current president and vice president and all our current government officials, I'm really hoping that at least they, they have a wish to somehow leave a good legacy or a wish to somehow do well, um, but I'm, I'm not sure. So the, the short answer is, no, I don't believe we will um, learn from our mistakes. Oh, I, I can't say anything about the officials of the DOH, though, because that's another thing altogether. Many I know many people in the DOH who are very responsible and who are very much aware of the issues at hand, but of course, they're, to a certain extent, their hands are tied, so um it, it's a bit difficult for them to move uh, the way they know they should move in other words so yes sad but true
0: <laughs> no it, it's it's a it's a really important it's amazing it's a really important question uh, jackie and and i and i think it has again it has implications for outside of the Philippines, as we've seen in in other countries around the world, and I have a, a quick follow up question before we move to the to the next question: Do you think, in terms of, for example, bureaucratic capacities, there has been improvement, or 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 rather, yes. um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a, any 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 specific mm-hmm. area that you, or for example, civic society, yeah, anything? As you can see, Uh-oh. I'm trying to see the glass half full. I somewhere. know
1: exactly. <laughs> Uh, anyway um, but I also because to begin with the bureaucracy is already pretty weak you know our institutions are pretty weak Um, and uh, well this is my worry this is why it caused so much anxiety with so many Filipinos before the elections Um, my worry is that they again very very bleak view, but my worry is that the institutions might not survive Um, so I, I, I don't know what to do, to be honest. Um, I'm, I would place my hope more in communities, in, in, in local communities and organizations, um, rather than in the government, which is a bit unfortunate because it's, it really feels like, um, every man for himself over here, like, uh, or we say Bahala na si Batman, bahala kayo It's it's a way of saying it, it's up to you guys, you know, or whatever you can do, it's it's really all up to you. Um and and so actually this one of the conclusions that I'm leaning toward in my thesis that we we need to strengthen communities. Because there's nothing wrong with evolution, there's nothing wrong with um, breaking up the health system to localizing them, if you ask me. Um, it's just that given the background in the Philippines and given how Manila had been so dominant, um, it just served as a repeater of all the injustices that had already been in place in a lo- for a long time. So I, I have a feeling if we strengthen communities um, and we allow them to do, we allow people to do what they need to do together um, in response to the pandemic, I think it will improve. Because I think, for instance, of uh, this is still in Duterte's time, the community pantries that many local groups put together. You know, it started with one person. She just left the cart in the middle of Maginhawa Street, left some food there and said to anyone who needs this, it's just at the height of the pandemic, feel free, feel free to get it. And of course, it went viral and people were so inspired and people started setting up their own community pantries. And no kidding, the national government shut it down. <laughs> Mm-hmm. it's shut it down so it's like we're already trying to help each other out and then they still shut it down so I, I think we, we need to strength, strengthen uh, the communal aspect of it uh, rather than rely so much on uh, which is sad we should be able to rely on the government but it's hard to do so so um, that would be my, my answer to that question
0: no, no, absolutely, and thank you, thank you so much uh, as well for you know giving a, a very, you know, very candid and honest view on it, and 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 jumping on it. I mean, there's an, the follow up question is actually connected to our conversation. Did the relational inequality exposed during COVID have have any impact on the previous election? Under bonbon, do you see relational inequality in the Philippines getting worse or improving? And and this is this is interesting, right? It once again highlights the connection between between politics of the day, discourse, and relational inequality.
1: For sure, I I, I definitely think so. And but it did take a different form. Um, of course, I, I cannot answer uh, with exactness because I. I didn't particularly look at that aspect for my thesis. I can only answer from my point of view of the experience of the election because um, what happened was they became a clear divide, um, a, a clear polarization of political beliefs, um, and and you know those who were for Marcos, for instance, versus those who were not, um, and even of uh, between people who uh, who supported other smaller or smaller candidates. Um, and, and there was a, relational, a sense of relational inequality in the sense that uh, you could see that you were not respecting each other's opinions. Um, and, and so it kind of transformed into that. And I, I think it has a lot to do with uh, anti-poor sentiment. It has a lot to do with classist sentiments. Mm-hmm. So for sure, it, it played a role the health aspect particularly of relational inequality um it had a lot to do with the what politicians were promising um and uh it also had a lot to do with money because money talks you know so whoever i I think whoever showed strength in their financial capacity kind of uh almost automatically got a vote of confidence from people so it, it 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 it, that's how it turned into, or that's how it transformed, and it affected the elections. Again, these are just my observations. I don't have the data to back this so, up. Um, these are just really my observations about, but how the relational inequalities pre-pandemic and of the pandemic affected um, uh, affected the elections.
0: No, and, and and Jackie, I feel that it's once again. I mean, it speaks to one of the you no, know, key strength. Mm-hmm. In your in your presentation and your research, okay. which is bringing which is bringing bringing the effects of class and inequality in, exactly. uh, you know, bringing it back to 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 the conversation, which is something that we saw emerging over the course of, of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, okay. but that was already pending for years, yes. mm-hmm. as as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. that's I absolutely agree. I'll, I'm jumping now to another question, and this question comes from from Andrew. Uh, Hi, Andrew.
1: Oh, Oh, Andrew, you're here. Hello.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The last quote from T. Pogge is a little enigmatic. How are the injustices you mentioned due to Mm -hmm. only taking into account only Mm -hmm. how people are affected and Mm -hmm. not taking into account how they are treated?
1: Mm. Well, the, the let me just reread the quote here. So I quoted Paul Gia, saying. And just a second, and just oh, a sure. second,
0: Jackie, I oh, also I also want to encourage again. Uh, anybody who has a question, please feel free to ask. Yes. It sure. There are other
1: there are actually questions in the chat, uh, but I haven't checked them yet. So I'll, I'll take okay. a look at it later. <laughs> um, great, so see, I'm gonna jump it. <laughs> so the, the the full quote is treating recipients justly does not boil down to promoting the best distribution among them. So just to contextualize, the first half of that quote has to do with the position of Bog- regarding how... Uh, any kind of discourse on justice in health had a lot to do with distributions, has a lot to do with making sure, that, oh, you get a fair share of this, you get a fair share of that. So very, very mathematical, very um, you know, focused on the quantitative aspect of it. What matters is how social rules treat, not how they affect those set of recipients. And really the point that he was trying, trying to drive at here was it's very possible to have... Um, an arrangement, a social arrangement, where the requirements of distributive justice are met, but it does not necessarily meet the requirements of relational justice. Mm. Um, so, and I, I draw from another set of uh, egalitarians who also wrote about health, Voigt and Wester. They gave the example, for instance, of um, uh, of patronizing policies. You know, uh, those who uh, Yes, those those who kind of tell the people, we know better than you, you listen to us. Um, So even if the end goal of that kind of uh, program or policy is to, of course, improve the health of people, it's still very disrespectful, you know, all these kinds of uh, policies that uh, force you to kind of do things. Um, And then another example that I can give is, uh, hold on, I'm, I'm trying to remember the term. Anything that can be stigmatizing. You know, uh, Voight and Wester signed, for example, the whole move against smokers um the the whole uh, push to create disgusting again i mean talking about it on health inequalities about the, the the move to show how disgusting smoking is on cigarette packs on in ads you know you, you see an ad of someone smoking then ew you know the, the 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 people in the ad behave that way it can potentially stigmatize those who are already further already super marginalized uh, totally marginalized by the community so these are examples of arrangements that might meet um, the requirements of uh, distributive justice because it ultimately improves the health of people even, but they're very disrespectful. They can disregard uh, the agency of individuals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, the the whole point of Fog is to also take that into account. For him, you cannot say it's real, real health justice if you just create a system where distributions are fair, you you also have to see that the the people involved are treated well, you know, that they're treated with respect, in other words. Um, And then that's why for him, it's not just how they affect these policies and programs. It shouldn't just be how they affect the recipients of health programs. It should also be how they treat these recipients. Uh, So I I hope that answers Andrew's question, I think might have lost the question. I was distracted by Christmas music yet again. I'm so sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I and I, I think it does. I think it does. And I think it also, you no, know, once again, points to the need of understanding uh, justice in a in a in a broader sense, in a richer sense that it also connects to the human condition on and and, to, and, and again to the sort of a social relational paradigm where it sits. Um, we have another question. As you said, there are questions in the chat. In the chat. Jackie, thank you for such a detailed presentation in such a short time. My question is, what can be done by the Filipino public to assist in addressing forward slash improving this sad state of fragmented health system and, mal- and malfunctioning public finance system? And I think that's actually a good question. You already talk about strengthening communities. Uh, we already talk about the dismal um, kind of not really hopeful state of, of, of the government, but what else can be done, uh, particularly with the public? Are we talking about communication? Are we talking about how to enhance that sort of bottom-up pressures uh, that come from the public as well?
1: Thank you so much. Jackie. Oh, also a Jackie. Hello from a Jackie. Uh, <laughs> aside from what I said earlier, strengthening communities, really Uh, building the more communal responsibility aspect of handling a health uh, crisis such as a pandemic. Um, In the context of bureaucracy, and I I borrow from, again, the literature involving uh, the devolution of government services, there's a push for, at least in the research, uh, there's a push toward, rather, fiscal federalism. Not federalism necessarily as in the, the government system, but really making the financial system, less dependent on, as much as possible, the national government. Um, And so a lot of that has to do with empowering LGUs specifically, uh, or at least uh, creating clearer policies that um, and of course, there's already been movement towards this. Uh, I forgot the name of what it is. I think it's called the Mandamus ruling. I'm trying to remain the, I remember the exact name of the new ruling. But it has a lot to do with making sure that LGUs have enough funds without necessarily relying on the government. So of it has a lot to do with policymaking. It has a lot to do with setting up the budget system. Uh uh, so that they don't have to anymore run to the government, the national government, to fund necessary things. Uh, the the sorry, fund their mandates, their go to fund their responsibilities. Um, of course, I, I won't go into the legal aspects of that. That's, ki- that's kind of beyond me. Yeah. And of course, also to the more intricate matters. But that's what the research is pointing to. Not necessarily a federal system, not necessarily making everything centralized again. Oh God, no, especially under Marcos. No, not that. We cannot re-centralize again. Um, it, it really has to do working with what we have now, strengthening communities and um, really beefing up the capacity of LGUs to provide for themselves, uh, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, no, thank you very much, uh, Jackie. And we're pretty much leading 256. We're almost uh, at the end of the the road in terms of time. Uh, I want to use this opportunity to, well, join Anthony Moran in the chat as he says, thanks for a great session.
1: Thank you, Anthony. Hello. (laughs) <laughs> I
0: mean, this was Thank a fantastic so session. I'm sure everyone um, enjoyed it as, as we, Thank as we so know much. what uh, you, and your presentation has connected very well with the central purpose of the forum. The idea that we have with the forum is to create a space where we actually share, connect and discuss openly the topics of of importance for our communities in, in the Philippines and Australia. Again, you know the forum is your is your home. Whenever you want to come back, and we look forward to
1: uh,
0: to remain. I know in. Maybe I can
1: visit, <laughs> so that I don't have to be in a mall where there's Christmas music playing. It's so jarring. I'm here talking about relational equality, and then I like, jingle like. bells, jingle bells.
0: <laughs> it's well, so jarring. You know, you're you're, you're like <laughs> being infused by the by the Christmas spirits. I, mean, I agree with uh, Anthony.
1: Too. They're great sharing, Paul. Uh, Ruud, thank you so much. <laughs> no, no, my
0: my 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 pleasure. And thanks again, everyone. And we'll have another event coming up uh, next week. Stay, Stay tuned for our webinar number four.
1: Thank you.